Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. There's only a week to go before the November 6th election, and Missouri Republican Party Chairman Todd Graves is bullish about his party's chances. Graves joins us on the latest edition of Politically Speaking to talk about the lay of the land in Missouri and what could be the difference between victory and defeat. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manish. Elections should be about your accomplishments. What have you done to qualify you for the position and why are you qualified to run? I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Lufius Alfa Romeo, offering test drives of the Alfa Romeo Giulia, the 2018 Motor Trend Car of the Year at Lufius Alfa Romeo in Fairview Heights. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio in St. Louis is Joe Manis. And joining us in KCUR's beautiful Kansas City studios, we have as our very special guest today. Uh, Todd Graves, chair of the Missouri Republican Party. First time on the Politically Speaking podcast. We're super grateful to have you here. I think, I think didn't we do have you one uh, a couple years ago? No, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, not on this. I've been interviewed by you, Joe, several okay. times, but okay. not on this. <laughs> Sorry, they're so memorable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, yeah, he's also a lawyer extraordinaire, and he or his law firm have been involved in a number of prominent litigations over the years, including Amendment 2, which, which is the— campaign finance limits that were passed in 2016. Mm -hmm. The only reason I mention that is the kind of stuff that he has some gravitas. He's not just a figurehead. He actually gets involved in this stuff. Very much so. And you, you before we talk about the uh, upcoming election, which is why we're talking to the chairman of the Republican and Democratic parties in Missouri, tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you do have a experience in politics, and it's not just because your brother is a congressman. You were in elected office yourself. Tell us a little bit about who Todd Graves is. Yeah, the funny thing is he's the older brother, and I got him into politics. Uh, in 1986, I was a, a student at the University of Missouri, and uh, Kip Bond was running for Senate for the first time. And I actually dropped out of school for a semester and was a field rep on his campaign. That was my first involvement in politics. And uh, I can still remember they asked me, uh, are you a Republican or a Democrat? At my interview at Harpo's of all places with, uh, I think Tony Feather was there and I'm not, I'm not sure who else. And I said, well, I'm not sure, but I know I'm a conservative. And uh, that's kind of a little bit the story of North Missouri. A lot of conservative folks who uh, uh, used to maybe lean a little more to the Democratic side and now certainly are, are strong uh, on the Republican side. From there, I worked on, I got to know Joe mainly when I, uh, I managed David Steelman's campaign in 1992 for attorney general. Along the way, I'd worked for Danforth. I did Youth for Danforth. And I was the Republican candidate for treasurer in uh, 2000. 
and then was the U- United States attorney in Kansas City and uh, started my law practice after that. Where, did you serve as Platt County prosecutor, too, or am I totally making that up? I did, and I kind of glossed over that. Uh, I was elected in 94, uh, Platt County prosecutor. I was 28 years old when I ran, and I did that, uh, was reelected to a second term uh, when I ran for treasurer and was subsequently appointed to U.S. attorney. So, yeah, I was a two-term prosecutor in Platt County. So... Um, you obviously have been involved in Republican politics a long time. You kind of talked about the changing nature of Republicanism in Missouri. You, mm-hmm. you, you come from northwest Missouri, way northwest Missouri, mm-hmm. Tarkio, I would yeah. think, in Atchison County. I, I, admit, I admit to both you and Joe, I am not an expert on Atchison County politics <laughs> because it's not something that I know a lot about. But I, I do know that northwest Missouri used to have a Democratic congressman. It used to have Democratic legislators. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we had Jeff Rowe on the show, you know, two or three years ago, he mentioned that even a place like Northwest Missouri, which now is very Republican, used to be a pretty difficult slog for Republicans. What did you think changed uh, to where it is now? Yeah, there's no doubt that it used to be a difficult slog. Now I live down closer to Kansas City, but I was raised in Tarkio, which is the most uh you know, the furthest. We were closer to Omaha and Des Moines than we were even to Kansas City. But um, with a few exceptions, they all went back to who settled where after the uh, Civil War. There were a couple of counties in central northwest to north central Missouri that were Republican. But other than that, those were old uh, conservative Democrat counties. Um, And, you know, I I think when I first got involved in Republican politics in 86, we, we, we owned the suburbs. The Republicans owned the suburbs. And the Democrats owned the inner cities. And then whoever did well in the rural areas is who won the election. That was the swing area. And much more so now, uh, Republicans are really strong in the uh, in the uh, rural areas and have continued to be relatively strong in the suburban areas, although that is the swing area. When we lose elections, it's because our, our numbers erode there. And uh, that's that's a pretty big change. And certainly North Missouri is uh, is very Republican now. When I was growing up, with the exception of a couple counties, it, it, all the courthouses were Democrat courthouses. Mm-hmm. Well, that I think segues to what we're, we're we're looking forward to in the next week and a half or so. And that is the 2018 election. Uh, let's let's talk about the suburban vote a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, because I think that there's been a national narrative that Democrats are making gains in suburban areas that may not be super enthusiastic about Trump. But the caveat, especially suburban women. But I think the caveat in Missouri is there are suburbs in in Missouri that you know typically were Democratic historically, but have become more Republican over time, and a lot of it does have to do with. Views of, views of candidates on abortion, gun control, the the Kavanaugh situation, gay marriage, gay marriage as well. So I'm talking about places like Buchanan County in in on the western part of the state, and then St. Charles, Lincoln County, and Jefferson County. Here, I, I think that the the Holly uh, McCaskill race is going to be won or lost in those areas, and suburban women, I think it's going to play a big role, as Joe mentioned. How do how do you think? Uh, your party is stacking up in those places right now. Well, I would, I, I guess, I would take issue with one of your your okay. categorizations. Sure. Buchanan County is not really a suburban county. It's a it's a whole thing into itself, and it has become very Republican compared to what it used to be. But I think the comparisons would be better, like Southern Platte and Clay, yeah. St. Charles, Jefferson. 
Uh, and and I wouldn't, you know, it's not not necessarily the social issues because those, with some exceptions, I mean, certainly on the St. Louis side, the, the Catholic uh, vote is much stronger, and that yes. would have some impact. But on the Kansas City side, I really, I, I really do, and you know, I'm the chairman of the Republican Party, so I see things from that lens. Um, I think that uh, on taxation issues and some sort of fundamental uh, issues, you know, historical viewpoints of, of the Missouri electorate, I think even in the suburbs, the Democrat Party, the National Democrat Party, and that's what they see on TV every night, has gotten more left and as it's gotten more extreme and uh, and as is embraced in, in some cases openly socialist candidates, I think that there are certainly suburban women, suburban men that say, you know, I may not be completely comfortable with this party on this issue, but that's a little further than I'm willing to go. And, and that's helped us in the last few elections. Well, one of the things, do you feel that your candidates now, I'm not going to earmark anybody specifically, are campaigning enough in some of these suburban areas? I mean, because I'm seeing where there's, uh, for better or for worse, uh, some of the Democratic challengers or incumbents have really been spending a lot of time in the suburban areas. And it seems like in some cases, some of the Republican candidates, except for those running for local offices, mm-hmm. have not been as visible. I was just wondering, am I just missing something or just kind of your thoughts? I, I don't think that's necessarily true. I mean, it's a big state and six million people for any one person is hard to get around. What I can say is, in my lifetime, I've never seen the turnout and door-to-door effort that we're conducting, uh, the state party, the, the national party, are conducting in conjunction with our candidates in the suburban areas. That's where we're focused. Uh, you know, so the counties you just mentioned, <laughs> that's where we're focused. And, uh, and we're, we've, we've knocked over a million doors. I mean, literally, a volunteer has gone to over a million doors in Missouri now and knocked on the door and, uh, and you know, based on lists and, and, uh, and uh, propensity and so forth and talked to average voters. So our focus as a party in this election is, is we're laser focused on the suburban areas. I think our candidates have been laser focused. I think as you go further up the ticket, it's just natural. Um, that that there's no way that candidate can can do as much retail politics as as more a more local candidate, uh, but we're certainly focused on that as a party. Now, one of the things that uh, Congresswoman Ann Wagner told me about uh, a week or two ago, when Jason and I were talking to her, was about um, the fact that are like there are about 15 campaign offices around the state. Mm-hmm at least four that are either in or around her district, which is the second district, that are run pretty much by the Republican National Committee. And maybe I'm wrong, but I don't recall having seeing such a Republican National Committee focus in the state in an off-year election as opposed to presidential election year. I think that does show how, how important Missouri may be to their fortunes in Congress. Am I missing that, or I, I'm just curious how you— see it and and was it something that you asked them to do or did they come to you months ago and say hey let's work together how'd that work out yeah well when she's 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 right there are about 15 but the truth is when you count uh, some lesser uh locations in terms of commitment we have about 50 offices and i that's you know that's unheard of even in a presidential election year for for us to be out there in, in that kind in those kind of numbers and uh, we were targeted certainly nationally Ronna Romney McDaniel who's the national RNC chair has been extremely effective at fundraising which has allowed a lot of this to be funded those monies are transferred to the Missouri Republican Party and then then we spend them in conjunction 
with the RNC. And and in this cycle, for the two-year cycle, uh, locally, we will have raised $2 million uh, for the party. And uh, we will have gotten another million dollars from uh, the national folks. And, uh, you know, they, they one, of the, one of the reasons clearly is the Senate race. That's why they're in here. Uh, with with that kind of commitment, but we've we've stepped up a great deal as a party as well locally, and and I don't know, um, I, you know, two years ago we didn't have that kind of effort. Uh, they say maybe back when we were more of a presidential bellwether state, we had a strong effort, but I don't know about the actual. We used to be a, do more phones and the actual door to door knocking and offices. I don't know that it's ever been like that. I know this is kind of a very insular question, but one of the things that I noticed, especially in 2016 on the Democratic side, is that when there was a, a national race, the U.S. Senate race between uh, Roy Blunt and Jason Kander, Jason Kander basically there at some point in the campaign got third party national Democratic support and then support from, uh, you know, Democratic leaning third party groups. And he had that for the rest of the campaign. It's looking like Josh Hawley who has had probably third party and national support for longer than Jason Kander did, is going to have that same type of backing both uh, you know nationally and as well locally. And, and I know that, again, that's an insular point, but when you lose that support in a competitive race, it's basically a death knell not only for that Senate candidate, but for also people down the ticket. How important do you think it is that you have somebody at the top of the ticket who is going to have the resources and the backing of the national party, and I guess the the backing of the local party, obviously, because you clearly want to defeat U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill mm-hmm. here. How important do you think that's going to be for the entire Republican effort statewide? I don't think it can be uh, overstated. A uh, million dollars, let's say that the primary reason that million dollars from the national party is here is because of Josh Hawley. A million dollars over a million voter contacts, a huge turnout effort, that is because of that outside support, and that's going to inert our candidates all the way up and down the ballot. Now, on the flip side, I think a lot of the um, a lot of the ballot measures that we have on the ballot are are basically stocking horses away. You know, everything is done essentially within the constraints of the modern campaign finance laws, and there, within those limits, there are things you can and you cannot do. And one of the things you can do if you want to help your candidate, and especially something that liberal and progressive groups do, is they put things like minimum wage and other things that are popular with uh, their constituent group on the ballot, and then they use that to turn out their voters. And I think that's why we have, uh, one of the reasons why we have so many ballot measures on this year. So it's, you know, it's, both of us are trying to deliver that extra punch, and it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a heavyweight fight right to the end. Well, just to play devil's advocate in 2016 and 2014, I think there were some gun measures and other mm-hmm. things on the statewide ballot um, that also helped encourage um, Republicans. Although I totally agree with you, most of the ballot measures that are on this time uh, would ap- would appear to uh, appeal to more progressive voters. But that said, what issues do you think are really fueling your base to come to the polls that you think may be fueling the other side, or just kind of how you you see it as far as the issues that are really propelling the enthusiasm? Well, I, I don't think, you know, we had an enthusiasm gap until the Kavanaugh hearings, and I don't think that anyone can dispute that uh, that has propelled our base, and that's taken us to a, an enthusiasm level that we wouldn't have had otherwise, because people tend to get complacent when, you know, we had a great election in 2016, we won a lot, a lot of things got passed, people are seeing what they want, 
and you tend, you know, if just a margin of people sit back on their laurels on that, then then that that can cost you an election. And we were, we, you know, I, we were seeing a little bit of that. And uh, with the Kavanaugh here, and people came up out of their seats. They they felt like that that was a real miscarriage of uh, of justice for the way the hearings were conducted. Republicans did. And that has propelled our base and other issues. It just seems that we've we've caught fire since then, and we've been able to maintain it. Uh, you know, thirteen. You know, a week is a long time in politics, so we'll see. Uh, but it, but uh, we certainly are being motivated by that. Well, let, we we talk a, a little bit about the U.S. Senate race. Let's go down the the ballot a little bit mm-hmm. more. Let's talk about the auditors' contest because we have a situation now where Nicole Galloway, who's the incumbent auditor, has and a Democrat has. Frankly, an unprecedented financial advantage. Usually, you look at those numbers and think Sandra McDowell is going to lose this race by 30 percentage points because she doesn't have the financial resources. There has been polling from Remington polling, which is a, admittingly like a Republican-leaning poll, but with it is Jeff Rose. with Jeff Rowe, that shows that race pretty close, all things considered. I just have to ask, and this is taking nothing away from Sandra McDowell, who we had on our show, and I'm personally very grateful that she came in to answer a lot of questions. If you're able to get a, a statewide candidate past the finish line who has raised fifty, sixty thousand dollars, does that just mean it's basically over for Democrats in the state to win statewide office? Like, what message do you think that would send? No, I don't. I don't think. I wish it meant that, but I don't think it does. <laughs> it might um, be a little optimistic there, but it would. I mean, yeah. but continue. Yeah, it. You know, I I was a down ballot uh, uh, candidate at one time, and I, I've seen the polling on that. I think I raised a million six. That was in two thousand. Yeah, didn't it, you run against Nancy Farmer? Yeah, I did, and and you know what's funny about Nancy Farmer? We polled after the election. I lost to her, and we polled after the election. What's the number one thing I identified her with? Well, she was a farmer because her name was Farmer. Yeah, and, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. And so those down ballot races, unfortunately, you work your tail off and you feel like you're, you know, you're making a dent. And, uh, you know, win or lose when there's a big, big race at the top of the ticket, don't take it too personally because the truth is you're in a tractor beam. And, uh, you know, if, if, if you think spending a million bucks the last couple of weeks of election when the national forces are spending 30, 40 million dollars in the media on something else is going to allow you to cut through, it's just not. And uh, so if, if, if we're fortunate enough to win that race, which, I, you know, I feel, I feel reasonably good about, um, it, it, I think a lot of it's going to have to do with the kind of turnout. If we put more, if more Repu- if we change what the electorate looks like, if more Republicans turn out, then we'll get more Republican votes all up and down the ticket. And uh, not only that, but just it just has to do with uh, the waves sometimes. And the waves don't have to be huge; they can be small. But they, but a small wave will upset a down ballot race. And, now, yeah. Well, since there's only two statewide offices, the Senate and State Auditor, and you know. Galloway is running a lot more ads, although notably, at least the ones I've seen, she doesn't mention that she's a Democrat in them. So does, I mean, I know that many in the Republican Party expected somebody else to be the state auditor nominee. Um, Have you had to make changes or like kind of, you know, and, and as far as how you promote McDowell or how you help her out or not? I mean, just interested when that happens. No, we've certainly we've certainly offered to help and have helped in many instances. And uh, you know, you just you do you, you every candidate's unique, and and uh, you know we try to we try to accentuate their strengths and help them with their weaknesses. But when when you say 
you know, Nicole Galloway, honestly, she's never been elected to a statewide office. She was appointed. So her name ID, it's not like she has. She's essentially starting from the same place Sondra McDowell, our candidate, starting from. And she has a million more dollars to try to hit six million people when there's 40 million dollars in the slosting around or more in the media. And so um, I think I think that we recognize that. And, and, and again, we just we try to help all of our candidates. Now, let's go to the state legislature, because now Republicans have super majorities in the House and Senate. You know, I think we Joe and I have written stories for years like, is this going to be the year Republicans finally lose ground in the House and Senate? They did lose a little bit of ground in 2012, but not like a, not not a very significant amount. And they gained it. And in they gained it in 2014. And then in 16, it was kind of a wash both ways. Well, what's kind of your expectations? Because from from talking with people, it could be a situation where it is possible that Republicans lose a little bit of ground in some of the suburban districts, but maybe actually gain a couple seats in, say, Jefferson County, for example, maybe a couple places in the Kansas City area. What what's kind of your general expectations about the House and Senate races this year? Yeah, you know my expectation. What 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 our the clock we're competing against is we're trying to make sure that we maintain a super majority. I mean that is from a Republican uh, chairman standpoint. I've got certainly other things to worry about uh, that trouble me more than 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 how we're going to do in the legislature. Because even if we lost a couple of seats, that now we're starting to question whether we have two thirds or not. So. <laughs> Um, we've we've played above the net for a long time. Um, I, I think that we live in a Republican state. I don't I don't think you know. Sometimes we we've won through candidate recruitment and effective uh, campaigns by the uh, HRCC and the Senate committee. They've done a very nice job, and so we've we've done very well. And I, it's it's almost like I don't know how it could get any better. And if we lose one or two seats, uh, that, yeah, that that's just the way it is. And we I, I'm not conceding that. I think we'll hold serve in the in the Senate and uh, in the House. Uh, you know, we could pick up, we could lose a few, we could be even. But it, it's really not that that much of a swing one way or the other. That's one thing I'm very confident about. Well, we were talking before. We were talking about some of the issues that may be influencing the the Senate race and as far as voter enthusiasm. But when you're dealing with the legislature, people aren't necessarily talking about Kavanaugh. They're talking mm-hmm. about whatever, school funding, I mean, you know, taxes, I mean, rural issues, farmers. Um, just what what do you think are the key issues for races outside of the Senate race, at least from your perspective, what you're hearing? You know, I, I don't know that there's a particular issue I'm hearing. What I do know is that the conservative message, uh, hourly identifying as conservative, sells in, in many, 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 many districts uh, in this in this state. And what we, you know, we really have been good at recruiting candidates. Um, we have good candidates. We have people who want to do it. And in a, in a small community, um, oftentimes, you know, it's just the person that will knock on more doors, that's more involved in the community, that still has an impact. And um, I don't know that I can think of, you know, other than keeping taxes low and the social issues you mentioned, guns and, and uh, pro-life and other things. Other, other than that, I, I don't know that there is an overriding issue this, uh, this election year. Was it difficult? I mean, okay, you've been chairman and you were chairman under the previous governor, Eric mm-hmm. Greitens. So you had to kind of deal, at least from the political perspective, all the fallout when during all those months of hearings and all that, that eventually resulted in uh, then Governor Greitens stepping down mm-hmm. and uh, Lieutenant Governor Mike Parson taking over. 
kind of, are there any things that you, any, I guess, things that you had to deal with during that time and any things that have been spilling over as you've been going into the general election? You know, uh, from our standpoint, we, we, we ride for the brand. And uh, when we feel like one of our candidates is being uh, attacked, our initial uh, reaction is to come to their defense. And um, that's what we did. When it became an issue, when the, when the Republican legislature took it up, and it became an issue where we had uh, lots of Republican candidates with different viewpoints and publicly expressing those viewpoints, uh, our belief was something that we talked about a lot is we have to let the process play out and we have to be here to pick up the pieces and put them back together when this is over with. And w so we, we stayed out of that um, as, as, the, as it moved through the legislature and as the process played out as a party, we stayed out of it. And then at the end, we were in a great position. I don't, I honestly, um, as a party, as an organiz organizing structure, uh, interrelationships. I don't see uh, fallout going into this election. Uh, are there people that are still sore about that? And you know, out there, there, there sure are. But um, uh, what's nice is I see them all pulling together for for what we have in front of us, which is the election in 2018. Have you had any discussions or any just casual conversations with Greitens since he stepped down? Um, I haven't. I haven't spoken to uh, Governor Greitens since he stepped down. Um, I, I just haven't had occasion to. But now there's a new governor, uh, Governor Parson. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that he's in kind of a honeymoon period right now with both parties. I think a lot of people who are in elected office are excited to work with him. Um, I, but I do think just like any other governor, he's going to run into issues that are going to elicit controversy and it's going to make uh, be make him unpopular in certain stages. Like, how do you think that he's handled the transition so far? I know, for example, he has embraced Proposition D, which is a gas tax increase, along with a number of other prominent Republicans. And there are some on the very conservative side and the very liberal side that don't like that proposal. Um, like, how do you think he's handling this? And how do you think he is uh, kind of factoring into this election season? Well, I think uh, the transition, he's he's done a nice job. The, the listening to her it was a nice touch, and he's sincere about it. I've personally met with him three times about the direction of the party. He's spoken to the state committee. I mean, he's concerned about helping Republican candidates. Uh, so he's, he's made all the right moves in that way. The challenge that he's going to have is... Um, you just mentioned a honeymoon, and certainly he has had that, and he and he's he's created a lot of that because of the things he said and the way he's conducted himself. Uh, but going into the legislature, then there are hard decisions to make, and there are going to be legislative proposals that there are going to be people that are for it or against it, and there are going to be ideological splits, and he's going to have to navigate that. And I think that's when it uh it it's going to you know when when it, he's going to maybe have a little bit more of a challenge. I know he's up to it, but. Um, Certainly, the base of the Republican Party is a conservative in the state. It's a low tax base. It's a less regulation uh, base. It's a uh, it's a, uh, a socially uh, conservative base, and um, we're a big tent. So we have other people that that have other views. But um, he's gonna he's gonna have to you know keep an eye on that. In the final few minutes we have left, I do want to touch on some of the ballot initiatives that you alluded mm -hmm. to. Has the Republican Missouri Republican Party voted to either oppose or support any of the ballot initiatives that are up, up for grabs? Yeah, Proposition 1, we're clearly against. Amendment and, uh, 1. Yeah, Amendment 1, clearly against. And that is, uh, we've gotten, you know, strong uh, discussion about that. Um, and... Uh, uh, 
certainly uh, that's something that's it's it's we would be the only state in the union. It's got all this other stuff, lobbyist gift bans and and other things, contribution limit changes that I don't think that uh, we really have a position on. But the redistricting proposal, which is bolted onto the back of it, we'd be the only state in the union that would not require districts to be connected. You could have a district that could be partially in University City and partially in Joplin if you wanted to under that under that uh, proposition. And we believe that it's that it's 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 a way. It's funded by George Soros and other groups. It's a way to try to. We've got a two-thirds majority in the legislature, and it's a way to try to flip that by changing the rules of the game and and from our standpoint unfairly uh changing the rules of the game so we've taken a position on that we vote on on these things and uh we've taken a position against that now just so our listeners so i know he uh mr graves is return is referring to what's known as quote clean missouri and which has a number of provisions in it R- but, right yes. and and i think the very name of it is is misleading there's a clean missouri lobbyist gift ban uh revolving door ban they're trying that's what they're talking about but those are fairly minor things that probably would be passed in the next session or two anyway what it's really doing it should be called the gerrymander missouri because that's what it would do it would gerrymander our legislative districts is there anything a state party is doing to try to get its message out against clean missouri well we're certainly doing social media we're, we're certainly informing our ma- members we're distributing the um uh yard signs but uh, that campaign's being run uh jim talent's chairing that group it's being run by a group outside of the state party but we're definitely playing a supporting role in I, that i don't really want to get super granular into this because a lot of this is just hypotheticals because we don't mm-hmm. know how these maps are going to get drawn but i have thought about especially in the st louis area if if the clean missouri proponents are you take them at their word and that you can't diminish African-American majority districts, which I know is a contentious issue. Isn't it hypothetically possible that if you draw districts, especially House or Senate districts, that kind of take very Democratic areas and say the inner ring suburbs of St. Louis and stretch them to, um, you know, West County or whatever, mm-hmm. isn't it possible that that could actually put the safe Democratic seats at risk and the Republicans could hypothetically gain under clean Missouri? If it's done in a certain way, I know you mentioned the Joplin to University City part, which mm-hmm. I'm not sure how you would actually do that. I'm thinking more of like you could stretch them within the metro area. I know that again, the granular hypothetical question, and I understand that you know Democrats are are largely behind writing and funding this, but isn't it possible this could shake out in the party's benefit if it's done in a particular way? Uh, in the Republican Party's benefit, I, I, I think it's unlikely. Certainly, I guess it could be possible, uh, depending on who's drawn. But we already have a nonpartisan process. The people that drew the last districts were appointed by Jay Nixon under the system. And what, 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 when you talk about not, there, there are only so many districts that are actually covered by the Voting Rights Act. And I think that's, those are the districts they're referring to that they'll keep intact. And those essentially have to be a majority-minority district and there were a lot of districts that that you may have minority members who win those districts who may not have a majority minority and those those would be changed in service of this even partisan balance in a, in an effort to what they claim get rid of partisanships in elections we make partisanship the most important factor in how we draw our districts and when you say you don't see the Joplin U City deal I don't know that that's what they do, but literally you do not have to connect the districts. If you And to get a 50-50 district, most of the Democrat votes in the state are packed in two fairly uh, compact areas. And the only way to break those areas up is to either snake out 
into the suburbs, out into the rural areas, or in the alternative, create like a spider web district where you have a piece over here and a piece over there, and they don't have to connect under the law. Well, How, yeah, I just want to say, though, they're going to say they're going to point to language that says it does have to be contiguous, though. And what, it, how would you respond to that? Well, what it says is the number one priority is partisan balance. The number two or three priorities contiguousness. So that's like saying as long as you have 50 cents, uh, you can have a cup of coffee and everyone should have a cup of coffee. But if they don't have 50 cents, they don't get a cup of coffee. I mean, it's it's sort of semantics. And when you rank things in the law, the number one thing is partisan balance. None of that other stuff matters if they don't have partisan balance. Okay. Um, a couple, there's several other ballot things. There's three different um, marijuana proposals to legalize it for medicinal mm -hmm. use. Won't get into the weeds, but as the state party take <laughs> Come it. Come on. I, 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 I had to get that in there. <laughs> I know you had to be blunt there. Yeah. Okay. But, but um, so has the state Republican Party taken a position on that one? We have not. Okay. And then, of course, there's the minimum wage proposal uh, known as Proposition B. Uh, have you taken a position on that? We haven't. And, and then the gas tax, I imagine that there is probably a split on that within the party. Is that fair to say? Yeah, we haven't taken a position on that one either. And, and part of it's when it comes up and when we have a meeting and, and so forth. I, I will just say, though, and this is just more of an observation, there has been this contention that medical marijuana is like a Democratic turnout mechanism. But I have also seen like kind of a movement among Republicans in favor of medical marijuana. So I'm, I, I clearly understand what you're saying about the minimum wage initiative, because if you look at minimum wage initiatives nationwide, typically they pop up when there's a competitive gubernatorial race mm -hmm. or a U.S. Senate race on, on, on the, when a Democrat is there. I'm just not I'm just not really sure that the same dynamic is in play with these marijuana initiatives. I think you might see them pass in rural and suburban and urban areas, because I think there has been kind of a political shift on that. I'm not sure if you've seen that within your party, but that's been kind of my outside observation on that. Well, well I think one of the three is actually backed by some uh, or some Republicans that are involved. I'm I'm the wrong person to ask because I'm 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 like a throwback on that issue. Fair I'm enough. Not, I'm not you know very modern on that issue, but you're right. There is a, there is a diversity of opinion certainly in the Republican Party. So, in my final question for you is, what do you think is at stake in this election? Obviously, I think the thing that a lot of people are going to be looking at is whether Josh Hawley can defeat Claire McCaskill. But we've talked a lot about the other things um, that will be up for grabs that could affect people in the state for, for years, if not decades. What, what, what do you think is at stake on November 6th? Well, November 6th in Missouri, I think our, our, our members of Congress are, are in fairly good shape, but the, but the national congressional picture is certainly in play. Uh, I, I'm here on the Kansas City side. We've got a couple of districts in Kansas, of all places, that I, I look across the line. I see that they're in play. They haven't been the last few cycles, so that's something that's in play. But certainly, certainly the direction of our country, there is a great um, divide right now. It's publicly being played out. And I think, um, uh, you know, depending on the, how the Senate comes out, which I feel good that we're going to hold and maybe even pick up a few seats in the Senate, uh, I think a lot of people are going to claim, however those things go, that essentially they've been vindicated. And uh, perhaps perhaps that'll actually settle things down a little bit after the election. Yeah, it is interesting that Kansas, of all places, has competitive House districts. You know, you would think that they would all be safe Republican districts, but... I think that the suburban area around Kansas City has changed quite a bit over the last uh, few years. But 
honestly, as a as a fourth or fifth generation Missourian, I sometimes forget Kansas is a state. So I'm not <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go there. Yeah, <laughs> we, we you know in Kansas City we can't forget. It's just right there. I I understand. Well well chairman, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Uh, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And I'm not sure if you're on Twitter, but how could people find out more about the Missouri Republican Party on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide uh, Web? Yeah, the, we are on Twitter. I'm not the one. I'm not... Uh... I, I may have a Twitter handle, but I'm not that uh, uh, familiar with it. But uh, just go to our website, and uh, you can plug into all the various social media exchanges we have. Thank you very much. Until next time, so long. Sponsored by Lou Fuse Alfa Romeo of Metro East. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.